Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In the northern provinces of Argentina, they don't weep for the death of small children. One less mouth on earth, one more angel in heaven. Death is drunk and dances from the first cock crow, sucking in long draughts of carb bean liqueur and chichi to the rhythm of bass drum and guitar. While the dancers whirl and stomp their feet, the child is passed from arm to arm. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Victoria Garza, author of The Field. In this personal story of grief after the tragic death of her little sister as a child, Garza dives deeply into religious and historical approaches to death, invites other family members to share their memories of the tragic event, and probes her own feelings about having jumped off the back of the truck just before the accident occurred. This is a poetic exploration of death, family, and memory. Hi, Victoria. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Galita. It's a pleasure to be here. So had you thought about writing this story for a long time, or did you suddenly realize all these years later that you hadn't deeply explored the aftermath of your sister's death? Uh, let's see. I the, the answer to the first part is that I didn't think I was writing a book until it became apparent that I was. And so for, for many years, I was writing what became content for the book. But um, while that was happening, I wasn't consciously thinking, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be an author and this is the book I'm, I need to write, um, and get out there. So for me, it was really an exercise. And while I was doing that and putting it down for great lengths of time and then picking it back up, um, there came a moment when I realized that it was something that I needed to complete, that I needed to finish. And, and that's what started the earnest, um, I would say kind of like, my writing in earnest in terms of formulating a structure and then realizing what kind of book I wanted to write and, and how I was going to do that. But I had been, you know, as writers, some writers, you know, have different words for this, but they have like a compost bin or a, a manuscript that's just really, really long. And it has all of these entries that you don't use. But um, once I realized I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of material, um, then the real work began to, start when mm-hmm. I was crafting it. Mm-hmm. You and your something. sister, Gina, I'm sorry, you and your sister, Gina, had already gone through your parents' divorce. Do you still remember that time? Or was the trauma of the divorce superseded by the accident? That's a great question. Um, I've never thought about that. I think, I don't think that in my case, the at the time, the divorce did not feel traumatic, right? It was something that seemed very um, necessary and kind of kind of something that we just emotionally knew was the right thing, even though it was uh, at the time it seemed kind of emotionally 
you know, difficult. But I think that once my sister's, once my sister died, that marker is very definitive. It's kind of, it, it's difficult to remember things prior and then it's difficult to remember things shortly thereafter, right? So it becomes this marker and then, and it kind of like an era, like a little, like a flag and, in, 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 you know, a stamp in the ground and you can sort of say, is this before or did this happen after? And then everything gets clumped accordingly, right? So it, I will always be able to look back at my childhood and remember things based on whether she was alive or whether she had passed. Mm-hmm. For sure. You don't, you don't share as many memories of Connie, the cousin who was also thrown in the truck, but the, your families were so close and everybody lived nearby. Can you say more? Yeah. Um, when I realized that I was writing a book, there were a host of things, right, that I didn't, that I decided not to include. Um, and I think, you know, it, what I was trying to do and what was a, a very peculiar experience for me was tapping into what it felt like when I was young, what that experience felt like when I was that person, that young child. And when I was young, I never thought about her. The um, the death, while it happened to both of our families, the, the death of my sister was so singular to me that it's as if nothing else existed. And it, it, it's, it's true insofar too, is that I, it took me a while to realize that death had happened to like so many other people in my family <laughs> besides me, right? And, and I think that's a sort of a function of being really young when that happens. Um, but it was very myopic. It was very... Um, Singular, and while I did have memories of both of them, uh, it was, it was, it was like tunnel vision. And then, of course, you know, when I did start writing, and I did, you know, take into account my my aunts and my and my my cousins' accounts of this of the situation of the of the accident, um, you know, there were simply things that I needed to kind of, you know, leave off, or they would have gone in a completely different direction. So I decided to just keep it to scope it really, really, um, almost like a like a macro camera, right? Like almost like everything else is shallow depth of field, and the one thing that you're focusing on is that thing that's very specific to you, and that's what it felt like to me. So she's there in the periphery, and all part of all of our childhood memories, and a part of those photo albums, uh, but I never really had a relationship with Connie outside of my sister. And I would say that that's probably true for my sisters, you know, having witnessed my relationship, for example, with my cousin Eddie, who was Connie's brother. So him and I were really, really close. Um, but we never, I never saw Connie on her own, right? And our family was so big, they, we didn't have those singular relationships. Um, the only one I had one was, was, of course, with my sister. But that's a great question. Yeah. Um, you write that after the accident, you were terrified of dying for three weeks and two days. What happened next? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so that kind of literary stunt, I like to call it, is 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 the way in which my brain worked. Right now, who knows if it was three weeks or two days, or three months and two days, or you know, three years and two days. It was this. A marker of time where I realized I was no longer a kid, right? I was no longer a child in a sense. And I think this is true when when um, other children experience certain traumas in their life. Um, 
you kind of lose your innocence in a way. There's a lot of things I learned in that moment that made it impossible for me to continue living like the child that I was. And, um, and then learning something about the, de- the sort of uh, definitiveness of death, you know, that early. Um, but, you know, whatever that time marker it is that I gave myself um, was a function of sort of being a kid, being in the present moment and realizing there was no going back. But I didn't even know what going forward meant, right? It's very conceptual. You don't, it's very abstract. Um, and, and that's how it felt at the time. And then after that moment for me, whenever that was, it was, um, it was, it, it was, it was like, now I have to carry on like a big girl. Right. <laughs> uh, that's what it felt like. Um, and then, and then, and then I chose life, right. I chose, okay. You know, and in the book, there's a, there's a, there's a moment where I say you can become one of two people when something like that happens, you either become afraid of everything or you become afraid of nothing. And I was lucky. I just sort of, for a long time, became afraid of nothing. And then, you know, moved through. And of course, it doesn't mean that there isn't healing that needs to be done and there aren't, you know, <laughs> survival instincts that need to sort of be put to rest when you become an adult. But, um, but that's what it felt like at the time. You know, I became a, a war. I was going to decide that I was going to be a warrior. And, and, um, and, and in, my, in my mental model of myself... I kind of went in that direction. And that's also when you started loving lists in your control mm-hmm. of them. Do you mm-hmm. still feel that mm-hmm. way? Yeah, I'm still a list maker. A list, a list, <laughs> a list when I decided that, um, it, it's probably why the function of me becoming a writer as well, right? I've been writing my whole life in one form or another. And, um, you know, it allows to me that metaphor that that loving to make lists was um, at the time a way to to get control of my feelings, and it was also now, of course, just a preeminent sort of tool I use to like keep track of my tasks. Either way, it's about control. It's about a linearity because my mind is not linear. It's very nonlinear and it leaps around and it kind of has always done that. I'm not a very kind of slow, methodical person. I'm a very kind of right brain thinker. And um, and of course, I didn't know any of this when I was young. I was just who I was. And, um, you know, list starting that exercise of listing, because I was also never into writing journals, never did that. And so my list became a function of that. (laughs) <laughs> right. And I could write very long lists or very short lists, or sometimes I would write things down on my list that I had already accomplished just so that I could go through the satisfaction of crossing them out. Um, little little tricks and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I still do that to this day. Mm-hmm. You know what? I'd love to know more about grace. Yeah, that's a deep one. Um, I I think... For me, and I remember that moment so clearly, it's one of those defining moments um, when I felt like I understood what that meant, but I didn't, I, I couldn't give words to it or could not articulate it until obviously I was much older, hence, which is why it took me so long to write the book and why now that I'm so much older can look back and with, with crystal clarity about those moments. And, and obviously I don't think I could have done that depending if I had 
tried to do this exercise when I was a lot younger. But um, I personified this feeling and um, and then attached it to uh, an artist in my childhood who just seemed to embody everything that I loved, you know, about uh, about this notion of regalness or eloquence or artistic creative freedom or whatever that is, right? That I was, that made me feel good. And um, it didn't hurt that my aunts were very in, interested in, in Aretha Franklin's music. So I used Aretha Franklin as my, as my personified notion of grace. And, um, and then giving her, and I did this, of course, I think, you know, I don't think this is peculiar to me, but, you know, would personify a lot of different things. I could personify um, different feelings with characters or animals or uh, public figures or things that meant something to me. And, um, and that is a, a feeling that is very interesting. You don't expect it. And when I, when I was writing about it, I realized, oh, there was this moment during that worst day on that worst moment and, you know, after this tragic accident and um, where I felt completely free and where I felt completely whole. And I, and I did not know what to make of that feeling, right? Because everyone around you at the time um, is, is having their own moment. And I think, you know, for everyone, it's different when they, when they can latch onto that feeling that they're going to be okay even though they're going through the worst thing that they've gone through in their life. Um, but feeling grace and then personifying that feeling um, is something that I've taken, you know, with me forever, but it is, it is, is an unmistakable feeling. And I remember trying, when I was trying to capture what that feeling felt like, um, because as a child, you have the great luxury of um, your mind, you know, leaping around, <laughs> you're not fixed. At least I wasn't. And so grace was one of those things that kind of conceptually allowed me to move through the, the, the grief. Yeah, I get it. Um, how, how did, how was what you called lighting lanterns helpful to you? Lighting lanterns was my very own personal spiritual practice before I knew of such a thing. <laughs> now I grew up Catholic, so there's lots of rituals and lots of things that I learned as a result of my growing up, you know, in Catholicism. But um, that was my way of combining what it felt like to me to perform my own rituals. And the lighting lanterns, which is a, a metaphor I took when I started studying Buddhism. So when I was st studying Buddhism, there's a a metaphor when you do uh, the uh, um, friendship center in Los Angeles. And so I kind of took that and that's what I was doing at the time. So I kind of took that metaphor and realized that that for me was what someone else would call their spiritual duty or their, their, um, you know, their, their religious, you know, activities uh, related to what they do at church and so on. But for me, it was very separate from that. And I try and explain a little bit in the book how, what it's like, you know, to grow up with as many questions as I had about, about Catholicism and about growing up in a Catholic family um, that just made no sense to me. Um, but the lighting lanterns made sense to me. And it felt like, oh, 
this is a practice that one does when they're trying to, uh, you know, be, be of service to others, um, which was a huge part of my upbringing, uh, which was the one, I would say, one of a few things that was very good about um, growing up Catholic as we lived in a very kind of service-oriented family and, um, you know, this acknowledgement that you're not here for yourself, but you're here for others. So taking all of that and then kind of combining it with my with my own modern day metaphor for what it means to engage in a spiritual practice. And that's what that was for me. And I just, and I called it, I went back in time and sort of like called it that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that, that's so interesting. Also, you, you say that reading poetry is like medicine for you. How cool is that? Can you say more? Yeah. Um, so once I became, uh, very interested in cultivating my own spiritual practice. Um, I started studying shamanism and I started studying plants and, and being, being Mexican American and kind of having a grandmother who was already very interested in how plants are, are healing modalities. Right. So the connection was very easy for me to make. It was resonated um, quite easily. And then when I made the connection of, medicine well in shamanism everything is medicine right you can do all sorts of kinds of medicine and whenever something either tragic or dis or uncomfortable or something that is hard to get your head around happens it's the universe giving you some medicine now it's not always easy taking medicine right sometimes it's pretty bitter and it goes down hard and you don't like it um but it is a form of um it is a practice or something that you do in order to heal right um, and so poetry for, for me was, uh, was medicine because it healed me. And, and, you know, if you're a writer and you have, um, very, um, and you're inspired by, by certain texts or what other people are doing, um, in their work, um, it just so happened that poetry became very accessible to accessible to me. And, um, and so it was that it was a practice again and it was very connected to what helps you know when you when you when you're when you're reading what others think or feel about something that resonates with you you feel instant connection and it just so happened at the time that you know and it's still true because i read a lot of poetry um i could never write it i don't think i would ever be able to write poetry so it stands as one of those things you know that i look at from afar and really admire um but and i also have friends who are poets uh very close friends so it was like that it was sort of like taking that stamp of of um medicine and using poetry for for healing purposes mm -hmm. you, you say at some point all of a sudden you realize that everybody was calling the girl, the, the two, the sister and the cousin, the girls together as one, and that you were all calling their deaths a disappearance. Can you explain that, how that made you feel? Was that, a, was that okay? Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it wasn't okay. Like I didn't have an, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, a judgment about it. Um, I didn't even think that I could, to be honest. It was sort of, it was sort of taken at face value. But when you, but but what resonated about it was that when you're one minute 
they're there and the next minute they're not. <laughs> and so that that it feeling like a disappearance is is true. Like that is in fact how it feels um, because you have no warning. Now for those who pass on and have suffered through chronic illness or it's taken a long time or you kind of know it's coming, um, people who are older in age and can feel that, that their mortality kind of know it's coming. But when you're young and experience something like that and it just sort of, you know, kind of slaps you, you don't, you're not expecting it. It does in fact feel like, like a magic trick. Like they're just, you know, they're just gone. Yeah. Do you think it was divine intervention that got you out of that truck before the accident and out of New York just before 9-11? <laughs> These are awesome questions. Um, my family certainly thinks that it was divine intervention because they have, you know, growing up the way I did, they have these ideas about, you know, I suppose destiny or what should be, you know, um, what's meant to happen. Right. And for a long time, I completely rejected this notion of like, uh, you know, this isn't what was meant to happen. It was just a freak accident. And, you know, I, I kind of, I wanted to reject that notion. Um, but as I've gotten older, uh, the story was of course, that that wasn't my, that wasn't my, uh, destiny, um, particularly for my mother, right. Who would have lost two girls and, um, and, and thought for a little bit that she had, right. So, um, the way that we talked about these things was very kind of more traditional and, and, um, that God has a plan and, has a and, and it wasn't part of my plan, right, to be gone. So so for a while it was hard to sort of bump up against that when you're that young. You sort of just go with the flow of what everyone's telling you. Um, but as I got a little bit older, I realized, okay, if there is something at work here and um, it is I'm more inclined to think, okay, what, what's it for? Right. Then I started, then I started to get obsessed with like, well, if that was the case, then, then what, then what's the reason? What's the real reason? Right. Um, and same thing with, with nine 11, I worked, I worked very close to, um, to that whole wall street area right out of school. And, and I happened to be in Texas at the time that that happened. Um, and there's other instances Galit, where this is true, like in my life, <clears throat> near misses, right? Whether it was a ski accident or falling off the roof of a of a house when I was making a movie, or um, you know, uh, near drowning or whatever. I mean, just I was very active, very physical. So these there's lots of things that happened uh, to me that sort of you know I got away with. Nothing, nothing horrible had happened. Um, but it's interesting. I go back and forth on my thoughts about it because while I do feel like there is, um, you know, it honestly depends on my mood because I do feel like there is some synchronistic, you know, thing that brings order to chaos. Everything that seems chaotic maybe isn't as much as, is, you know, we'd like to believe. But um, yeah, I do feel like, I do feel like that's, that it's a mystery. And I, and I don't have a good answer for it, but it is definitely a mystery that I like thinking about. <laughs> As we say, tfu, tfu, tfu. 
you know. Which, which is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, Victoria, what are you working on next? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, when I was finishing my, my – when I was finishing this manuscript, I started to get into um, – a, a, a bit more around the narrative of working with plants and how plants and and the ceremonies I did with plants kind of helped accelerate my healing and certainly accelerate the the healing of of wounds that I didn't even know I had right um, but you know I realized and it was a great counsel from some author friends of mine like that was a second book so I so I'm actually veering towards you know continue it's a nonfiction, a creative nonfiction manuscript um, around plants, but also around the politics of them and the healing nature of them in relationship to the political structure that decides what is and isn't acceptable, right, for healing. So that's kind of like I'm just it's very, very, very nascent kind of early, but um I'm kind of tooling around with that idea. Wow, it sounds Totally up my alley. I can't wait to see it. Keep me, keep me posted. Anyway, well, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today, Victoria. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Galit. This has been wonderful. And your questions were so thoughtful and so deep. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you.